One of the ways that Jesus reveals himself to his people is through the reading of his holy scriptures. And this morning we meet Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. And before we hear the Gospel this morning, let's pray that the Spirit of God may open our hearts. Our generous God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for ears to hear it. And we pray that your spirit will now open the ears of our heart, that we may truly hear it. And in truly hearing it, fashion our lives according to it. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The word of the Lord from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one, one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until... He finds it, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people. Who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. I have to confess that the thought of preaching a familiar tale like this one fills me with a mixture of excitement and a little dread, too. Excitement because parables are Timeless classics, right? Very familiar. People know the stories. They know the words. It's kind of like that guy with an acoustic guitar in the coffee shop on a Friday night singing Wonderwall. Everyone knows the words. They, They sing along and they wistfully remember how great 1994 was. If you can remember 1994. But dread, too. Because like that version of Wonderwall with the guy at the guitar at the coffee shop, it can start to feel a little worn out, a little shop-worn, a little familiar. Parables are slight little morsels of theology, and we've chewed them so often they can feel kind of like a clump of gum stuck under the desk or something. But I'm with Frederick Buechner, the great writer, who says that most parables have a kind of sad fun to them. There's irony in them, some sarcasm in them. They point to the love and and grace and mercy of God for sure, but maybe also to some of God's frustration with hard-headed people and their hard-headed ways. I think it's easy to miss out on that tone, the irony and the sarcasm and the, the sly kind of subversive words there, 
Because we often treat Jesus' words like they're spoken in a monotone, like he's some guru on a mountainside. So in the spirit of excitement in talking about this parable this morning, let's explore some of the more subtle frequencies. Let's talk about three things in this parable that our familiarity with it might actually cause us to miss. This is an unbelievably rich story in the space of a few verses. As Frederick Buechner would say, a, a small story with a big point. So Luke gives us a familiar setting this morning. Jesus the storyteller. Right in the middle of the two classic categories of people, right? The sinners and the tax collectors on one side, sidling up close to hear what Jesus has to say. And then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Maybe not as close, but definitely within earshot. Because they want to hear what he has to say too. And I know Christians are used to saying things like, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But Luke's decision to use that word here as as the primary description of a group of people really sticks out. These aren't ordinary sinners. These are people who are known for their sin. Their sin is a matter of the public record. Their hard living is is, is all over their face, and it's obvious when you pass them in the market, you kind of want to look down at your sandals. And when it comes to people like that, the righteous people, the other category, the teachers of the law, the people who know the right things to do, they're quick to judge, quick to assume. But despite all that hard living written on the face of the sinners, Jesus doesn't treat them with any condescension. He doesn't treat them like a charity case. Instead, he's embracing them and he's eating with them and and having a pint of warm Palestinian beer with them, with these outsiders, with these rough folks. And when the opportunity for a lecture arises, he doesn't take it. He seems to prefer prefer the company prefer the joy of fellowship, of a shared food around a table. Good company with people who aren't, supposedly aren't, good company. And this means the Pharisees start to grumble. They mutter about what Jesus is doing. They think, oh, look at him licking his fingers after eating those chicken wings. Oh, did he just hug that guy? Physical distancing, man. You can't get too close to these people because it's going to rub off on you. You've got to stay separate. Don't don't these people need to hear a call to be holy? And on account of that grumbling, the physical distancing, the gap between these two classic categories of people widens. The divide between the sinners, the tax collectors, and the folks who know the right things to do, the the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, it gets bigger. And Jesus knows this. And Luke says Jesus tells them a parable. It doesn't really say who them is, but we can assume it's both categories of people. 
a parable that would comfort the afflicted and a parable that might afflict the comfortable. And here's that first piece, that first thing we might miss in this passage because it's so familiar. Luke has set up these two classic categories of people, sinners and righteous. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't reinforce the categories. Instead, Jesus talks about things that are lost and things that are found. He's not talking about the difference between good and bad. In fact, good and bad don't even seem to factor into this parable. Instead, it's about things that are lost in the way that they're found. So as I say, this is a familiar parable, but I think we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because those categories that Luke gives us, those those linger. It's a hard thing to shake. It sneaks into the way we talk about others. It sneaks into the way we react to others. The sense of ease or or comfort that we might have with other people. The kind of people who have hard living written over their faces. And I wonder, I wonder if that's a struggle, that's especially a struggle for people like us. For church people. I I think we probably all know a story in our own lives of someone who kind of fits the story of the lost sheep really well, right? Someone who was raised in the church and grew up and went to Sunday school and and cadets and gems and did all the right kind of things and then kind of lost their way for a while. But then one Sunday morning, some sunny Sunday morning, there they were in church They'd come back to the flock. We we probably all know a story like that, but I don't know how many of us would say that's our story. We're a self-assured, self-confident group of people. We're competent, and we're organized, and We own successful businesses and we've been successfully educated and trained and given credentials. We set out to do things, we we do them well. And I wonder if one of the subtle temptations of that is that we might instinctively place ourselves in the category of the righteous. Right beside the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know the right stuff to do. We know the way it's accomplished, the way it's finished. There's a lot to be said for being self-assured and confident. But there's also risks there, I think. And I think the risks can actually lead us away from the shepherd. Here's a story of, of what I'm getting at. I know of an urban church that's not too far from here, that has a few homeless people that attend worship on Sunday morning when people attend worship in normal times. And most people drive into this church and they park their car in the parking lot, but the homeless people don't have much use for a parking lot. They walk. But they do need a place to stash their stuff. And so every morning at 10 a.m., there's a bunch of shopping carts out front of the church 
filled with all sorts of interesting things. Dirty old plastic bottles and, and cans and, and, and garbage bags filled with who knows what. And some of the more esteemed members of the congregation, they grumble about those shopping carts. Cluttering up the front of the church on a nice Sunday morning. But here's the thing. Everyone comes to church with garbage bags full of stuff. A lot of it looks like garbage. A lot of us are lugging really heavy things. And we're looking for a place to drop it off. But when you're in the righteous crowd, or when you count yourself as a member of the righteous crowd, you don't have to dump it off in the parking lot before you come in. No one really asks. You can just come on in. Or here's another example, and this is a more fraud example, I know. But imagine being a gay kid in our denomination. A baptized member of the covenant. And to hear elders and ministers debate at great length and with great oratory precisely the way that you miss the mark. Hear them say, yeah, we love you and we want you part of our flock, but we require a few things of you first. It might make you wonder, when do they get that kind of scrutiny? When does anyone ever ask them about how they spend their money? or how they welcome strangers, or any of the other important, important things we find in the scriptures. It's very rare that someone parses out in public the way that they fall short. And just as a related aside, I wonder how these conversations would be different if we stipulated that if you want to talk about someone else's sin, you've got to deal out one of yours first. And not like a minor one, like the time you cussed out the dog or something, like like a serious one, like, like a good one. I mean a bad one. A good bad one, you know what I mean. How, how would that change things? Would it open up our hearts to each other in the solidarity of, of how hard it is to be a good sheep? How hard it is to stay with the flock? So I'm speaking to the righteous crowd this morning, but I'm not speaking to the righteous crowd because I want the righteous crowd to actually realize that they're filthy sinners. I don't want to bring the old Calvinist hammer down this morning. Because I think that's overkill. Because I think so many of us actually want to be righteous. We want to know what the Bible says. We want to be like Jesus. We do deep down. And we work really hard at it. We work and work and work. We're generous with our time, and we're generous with our money, and, and we mentor kids, and, and we raise children to love God, and we love our church, and we love our denomination, and we love this congregation. And all of those things are awesome. All of those things are commendable. So instead, the question that's been turning over in my head all week is this. Can you work really hard at being a good Christian and still be lost? Can you work really hard at being a good Christian and still get lost? Could the woman who shows up to church on time 
every Sunday, but then notices how her eyes dart around the sanctuary to see who's there and who's not there and how so-and-so is dressed. Could she be lost? What about the man who knows, who knows the scriptures front to back, huge portions of it memorized, but always seems to use it as ammunition in an argument? Could he be lost? What about someone who, who loves the church so dearly that they want to shrink wrap it and keep it the same and never let it change? Could they be lost? Or what if someone who loves the church so much that they want to bring it to the 21st century? Let's forget where we've been and let's, 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 let's embark on this new day. Could they be lost? What about parents who want their children to succeed so dearly that they wrap their whole lives around hockey games and dance recitals? Could they be lost? Or what about the retired person who socked away money all their working life and has a nice pension now, but seems to have no direction, no vocation anymore? Could they be lost? What about the student who just kills it at math and gets into the fancy engineering program at the University of Waterloo and works really hard and then three years later thinks, I don't know what I'm doing here. Are they lost? I think so. The Lutheran preacher David Lowe says, when we describe ourselves primarily in terms of whether we're a sinner or whether we're righteous, that's a legal designation that defines ourselves by what we've done. But if we understand ourselves as lost and ultimately as found, that's a deep, existential, relational way of understanding who we are. And that means the shepherd can come to us and give us an identity that goes way beyond anything we've done, way beyond anything we're doing, or way beyond anything we might someday do. And another one of those subtle, clever ironies in this parable says that. Here's that second thing that we might miss about this parable. At its close, we hear of a great party. Much rejoicing at the return home of this sheep that got lost. But what about the other 99? The ones who supposedly don't need repentance. Where are the 99? There's an old Dwight Moody gospel song that says, There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. But one was up on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. But that's Dwight Moody, that's not Luke. Jesus says the good shepherd leaves his flock out in the open, which is to say, out in the wilderness, in his desperate search for the lost sheep. And when the story ends, as far as I can tell, the 99 are still out there. I mean, I guess they've got each other. 
They're not alone. And, and some of them, maybe, maybe sheep number 64, who hangs out in the middle of the flock, has no idea that the shepherd is gone. It might just be business as usual in the sheep flock. But for a few sheep, maybe the ones on the outskirts of the flock, maybe they see that dusk is rolling in. And then they look down the meadow, down to that stand of trees, and they see the wolves flitting like ghosts between the trunks. Jesus leaves us hanging on the fate of the 99. And the only thing I can think of to say is that they are in as desperate a need of a shepherd as that one little sheep that went away. And I know that sounds like a warning, but I actually think that's gospel. I actually think that's good news. Good news for the righteous crowd, right? Because it can feel amazing to have it all put together. Feel amazing to be self-sufficient and confident and self-assured and to get things done when they need to get done. It feels great to work hard at this Christian life, to see growth and maturity and the emergence of genuine holy living. Life goes smoothly like that. But of course, life doesn't go smoothly all the time. And our dreams and our hopes get dashed. We feel lost and adrift, cut loose. And it's then that we're promised that the good shepherd is coming to find us. When all of our work fails and falls apart, we're not alone or abandoned. It's then when the shepherd is on his way. It's good news to know that all we need to do is repent and we're welcomed back into the fold. Repentance. About that, here's that third thing in the parable that we might miss. I have read through this parable like 20 times this week and I can't find the repentance. Those closing lines in verse 7 seem like such an interesting conclusion here. Such a strange conclusion. Nowhere does Jesus talk about a sheep coming back to the master, plucking awkwardly on a tuft of wool, looking kind of sheepish, and making penance for its wayward wanderings. I don't, I don't see a shepherd demanding an account of what went wrong with the sheep, I don't see a shepherd saying, 40 Hail Marys and you're good. I don't see a shepherd saying, are you sure you've got it sorted out now? The only thing I see is a shepherd making an example of a sheep that got lost. Which is to say, I see a shepherd holding up the sheep in the celebration and the joy of being found. Repentance is almost conspicuous by its absence here. As if the Christian life is not primarily about something we do. As if it's the shepherd who comes to us. 
As if it's the shepherd who calls to us. As if it's the shepherd who brings us home. This is grace all the way down. Grace, grace, grace. And it's so interesting how the righteous crowd can push back on that. As I was preparing this sermon, I read a bunch of other sermons online on the same passage, as I always do. And I stumbled across uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber's sermon. Nadia is a pastor in Denver, and uh, she's Lutheran. And like any Lutheran sermon, hers was full of grace. But then I read the comments. If you take anything away from this sermon, don't read the comments. The comment said things like, Nadia is wrong. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Nadia is wrong. We must repent and believe. Nadia is wrong. Jesus tells us that nothing unrighteous may see his father, that we must eat of the true manna, which is his flesh, and drink his blood to have life in us. Those are the comments. And you know, those comments were actually quotes from the actual Bible. And grace can definitely be made cheap. But the spirit in which they were said says so much. We want to qualify the grace that the shepherd has, uh, has for us. We, we want to make sure the right standards are in place. And, and my working theory is the people who want to do that are convinced that they're already doing the right things. Otherwise they, wouldn't, otherwise, they wouldn't say it. And then we're back to making the gospel about something we do as opposed to to who we are in Jesus. We're back to those two categories, the righteous and the sinners. I think the righteous crowd has so much to learn from that little lost lamb who lets the shepherd carry her home. People who know that they're lost, people who know how easy it is to get lost, They don't put qualifications on the grace and mercy of the shepherd. So maybe repentance for these sheep, according to this shepherd, maybe repentance looks more like this. A little lamb who knows that she's lost and bleats, Or maybe it's not even that much. I don't know much about sheep, but people who do know about sheep tell me that when they're lost, they actually clam right up. Because they know if they bleat too loudly, that that attracts predators. But they can listen. And maybe that's repentance. Knowing how easy it is to get lost but knowing, too, that the shepherd comes calling. Knowing that you can listen for the call of the shepherd and that he will look until he finds you. My brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But it also tells us this. If you are feeling lost... Hang tight. The shepherd is on his way. 
may we listen for his call. He's not coming to drive us back into the fold, to take out his staff and and jab us back into the pen. Instead, he's coming to get down on one knee, to tenderly pick you up, to put you on his shoulders, and to carry you all the way back into the joy, into the party that is the kingdom of God. I think when the shepherd looks out over his flock, he sees a lot of lost sheep. I don't think he sees any lost causes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Our good, good shepherd, we confess to you that we make our faith in you more about things that we do than what you have done for us. We can be a proud people. May we also remember how easy it is to get lost. May we also remember how easy it is for our neighbors to be lost. But most importantly, may we remember that when we are lost, we are not alone because that is when you start your search. We praise you for being a God who does not abandon his lost creatures, but for being a God who seeks and chases them down and finds them and brings them home. May that be the grace and the mercy that shapes our lives this week and in the week to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, amen.